0: Okay, if you have a Bible, flip to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, and then if you look at the bulletin, there's a lot of scriptures. I'm going to read them, but if you want to go to Genesis 2 and then hang out in Matthew 26, you can kind of flip to those two. Um, put your pinky in one and, and, uh, and then the other one. So Genesis two, fifteen through 17... And then I'm going to read a couple more quick passages from there. And then we're going to hit Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, and then y'all can rejoin me back in Matthew 26. But Alright, as we continue our foundation series today, we're talking about Covenant, Genesis 2, verse 15. These are the words of God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 9 verse 9 says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Genesis 15, 17 through 18a. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Deuteronomy 5, 1-3 And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. Second Samuel seven twelve through 13 When your days are fulfilled, this is the Lord speaking to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then Matthew 26 Twenty six through twenty eight. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for the gift of your covenant, and we rejoice that. In Christ, we are a new creation. As new creatures, Father, we desire to love and serve the kingdom that your Son has come to establish. I ask and pray that as your covenant people, we would find ourselves committed to the covenant you have made with us so that we might experience the storehouse of your blessings. In Christ's name I pray, amen. John Paul Sartre, a more recent and popular existentialist, he argued that man first exists, and then from there he makes himself. Man first exists, and then from there he makes himself. Existence precedes essence was the main substance of his, his argument. Existent comes existence, and who you, you know you exist, and you find yourself here. That comes or precedes your um, your essence, your being, your nature. Man, in this in this idea that he was postulating and putting putting forward, man finds in, finds himself in existence. You you suddenly at some point you realize, oh, I'm here, and I'm thinking and I'm knowing that I'm here, and from that point he gets to be the determiner of himself, his being and his his being is his and his alone to discover. That's that's the existentialist Sartre's um his belief. Now, this notion of autonomy is, of course, nothing new. Um, sinners have always tried to write God out of the story. That's just—that's part of what it means to be a rebel. we got to write God out of this. Yet, despite Sartre's attempts to escape the covenant lord, the, logic end, the logical end of his nihilistic impulse is the utter destruction of man. Uh, that's what existentialism has given the world, this idea that man is his own thing and he can do his own thing and all it leads to is the destruction of man. If man is his own maker, the argument goes, then man is his own predestinator, right? He gets to choose beforehand. He gets to decide the future. He gets to decide, it. and if that's the case, obviously it's not, but for the sake of the argument, if that's the case, then logic, morality, and a unifying coherence of self and the world is tossed out of the window. Uh, So if you read any, um, I've been reading a lot of Schaefer lately and really getting into some of his philosophical viewpoints, and I'm really enjoying it because at the end of the day, every person on this earth is looking around trying to find a unifying principle. They're trying to find a way to make sense, a universal up here, Schaefer calls it upper story stuff, a universal thing up here that makes sense of all the particulars. I'm a human, you guys are humans, there's animals here on this farm. We're in a barn. How does all that tie together? What are the principles? And for the existentialist, it just means whatever you want it to be. It can mean whatever you want it to be. So you lose logic, you lose morality, and you, you, you lose that unifying coherence of not only yourself and how you understand yourself, but also the world around you. So this, this is sometimes called subjectivism. But this subjectivism is unable to make sense of anything, really which is why the world right now is confusedly stammering around Um, there's just it's just constant bickering constant back and forth everything's politicized Oh, you wore that color of shirt you are making a political statement well no it's just blue I'm I'm not but everything becomes hyper sensitive hyper politicized and that's because everybody's scrambling to make sense of the world and they don't have it because they don't have Jesus But man, while finding himself in history as someone who is rational, someone who is emotive and experiences those things, ultimately, we know, owes his existence to the fact um, that God is the creator. We all owe our existence to God the creator. And notice, you know, I've never seen a cow or a horse walking around with an existential crisis. I don't know who I am. (laughs) Animals do what they do because God has made them as such. But, it's, but we're rational beings. We're different than animals, um, and, and that's a good thing, even though <laughs> the, the Darwinian folks would love to just assume we're all animals so we get to do whatever we want. But we are different, and so we owe, owe that fact to God the Creator, who is himself a rational being. So that's where the connection is. So the Bible does not teach, the Bible does not teach of life as existing on its own autonomous volition. Rather, all of life stems from the fact that God has graciously given us his covenant. All of life stems from this fact. God has covenanted, he has given us a covenant. And don't miss this, not only has he given us a covenant, guess what, we're all accountable to the covenant now. No one is outside of that. All the trees are accountable to the covenant of God. When God cursed the ground, the earth was subjected to futility. That's Romans 8. So all all of life, everything, all the stars, the moon, the sun, everything is accountable to the covenant of God. The whole of creation is accountable to God and his covenant. All of life is governed by the authority of the covenant and the covenant law. So don't miss this when you study presuppositional apologetics or you are talking to folks who are in you know the existentialist camp don't let them try to act like they're not accountable to the covenant they are that's why it's ridiculous to just say oh well the church is over here and jesus is our head kind of the argument we made last week no jesus is head of state too because everyone president Biden former president Donald Trump, all of these people, the bigwigs in Congress, you name it, they're all accountable to the covenant. Even though they don't self-consciously realize it, but they are, they are accountable because the covenant God made is the covenant with creation. Everything, every molecule, every atom. So God is the covenant Lord and, and the king of all creation is completely alone in his sovereign rule. Note that he is completely alone in his sovereign rule. So he has no, no man rivals him. No political group rivals him. No CDC command rivals him. <laughs> only God is king. Now, rather than finding our existence on our own terms, the only way to make sense of the world, and frankly, the only way to make sense of ourselves, is by having a covenantal view of all of life. It's the only way. The covenant brings it all together. You're not, you don't just exist and then you develop your being, Actually, it's the opposite, Um, even though Sartre had some things that were right and he agreed because he was borrowing from our worldview, but he was wrong on this. Even before you're born, you have a being, and that's because God is being. So you don't just make up your life as you come. Oh, hello world, I'm here. Um, I'm going to call the grass blue and the sky green, and I'm just going to go with that. And it's my right. It's my truth. I get to live that truth. And if you make fun of me, I will um, press charges of some sort. I'll figure that out when I get there, because it's my reality. No one gets to live like that. That's one of the failures of the transgenderism movement. You don't get to just make this up as you go, because God is, you're accountable to the covenant. All right, let's look at our text. The passages that I chose are all in chronological and redemptive order, by the way. So we just went Genesis through the Old Testament and then to Matthew. But before we get to those, you should know that the very first covenant that ever existed existed and it began actually in eternity, before time, before creation. Theologians often call this the covenant of redemption, which, is, which was basically the triune Godhead's conscious decision to create a world where redemption would occur. At some point, the Godhead came together in a holy huddle of sorts, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and said, we're going to create, we're gonna create a world, and we're gonna create a world where redemption will occur. Um, Revelation speaks of the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And you think, wait, well, Jesus died you know, 2,000 years ago. What do you mean before the foundations of the world the lamb was slain? Well, that's a reference to this covenant. God made a self-conscious de- decision, the triune God, to create a world where redemption would occur. It was the divine counsel that set space, time, and matter in motion um, beginning back in Genesis 1.1. So part of this decision was the creation of man as the the crescendo and the center of creation. So yes, God decided, I'm going to make the world, I'm going to make a world where redemption is going to occur, and I'm going to put man right there in the middle of it, and that's my prized possession. That's the only thing that bears the image of God, not the animals, not the trees, not the plants, not the water, not, you know, the dirt. None of that bears my image. Man bears my image. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So when God created Adam and Eve, they were given a covenant, though the word itself isn't used. The word um, berith in Hebrew isn't used there in Genesis 1 or 2. Now, sometimes this is called the covenant of works. Sometimes uh, it's called the covenant of works. And uh, I actually agree with Rushdunee that that's actually not a great phrase. It's not a great phrase to say that God gave Adam and Eve a covenant of works. And usually what that means is, well, they had to work to prove their righteousness. Um, I don't think that's what we're dealing with. So I actually agree with he He critiques that. When God told Adam to work and keep the garden... Remember that he said to work and keep the garden, but he also said to refrain from eating. Which tree, children? Which tree was Adam and Eve told not to eat of? We went over this a couple weeks ago. The tree of the knowledge of. Okay, I didn't know. I didn't hear you, Lorna. So I wasn't sure if that's what you said. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God says, work and keep the garden. But guess what? He says, see this tree over here. Don't eat it. Don't eat of it. Can't eat the fruit that's on there. Do not eat of it. So he did that, of course, we know from scripture. He wasn't, he wasn't testing Adam to see if there was a works-based system that he could kind of put there in, in for man. You know, Don't eat that. I'm just going to see You know, if, if you're going to... Um, he, he did test Adam, no doubt, but it wasn't because it was a works-based system that God was working on. No, as a covenant of grace... God initiated not only the creation of man, but he also initiated the relationship with man as well. So, think of it this way. This is why I don't like the phrase covenant of works to describe Genesis 1 and 2. Works. All all covenants are grace and works. There's elements of it, okay? All all covenants in scripture have that element to it. But the ordering has to be straight. Works. Works are the response of gratitude for the grace of the law. So you follow? Works and what comes out of that, like obedience. Works are, um, they're basically, you're responding to being grateful for God's law, knowing that it's a gracious thing. Then you work out of it. So all of the covenants are like that, including Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So Adam, Adam was God's creature. He was made by grace. I mean... <laughs> You know, Adam didn't come, you know, out of the dirt and say, Wow, man, that was fun. I'm glad I did that to myself. It's ridiculous. That's, Sartre and the existentialists, that's their position. Then he gets to discover who he is. No, he's made in the image of God, and he's created in fellowship with God. And Adam and God, who knows, they maybe hung out in a barn like this, and he was explaining to him, Yeah, you're my prized creation, and I love you, and I want you to reflect my image and do this in the world. And, and Adam wasn't like, okay, well, I guess I'll try to be good enough for my new heavenly father. That's not, that's not what it is. Adam was to obey, but out of, out of grace and out of mercy from God. So he didn't, he didn't, it wasn't Adam's own will that he existed, which means that he was totally responsible to this grace. Adam knew it was a covenant treaty. He understood it. God had had to have explained it to him in some sense. And then he was to, to be obedient. So think of it this way, Adam in the garden, he could not terminate the covenant. There's no possible way of that. He, he couldn't um, opt out of it. You know, Lord, that thing about that fruit tree there, you told me not to eat of it, uh, is, is, seems a little cumbersome, don't you? <laughs> Why would you do that? I'm going to opt out of this relationship. Of course, you know, he tried to opt out with, with Eve later on, but you know, Adam wasn't in a position to do that. And not only was Adam not able to do that, he wasn't even able to initiate a different sort of covenant. He didn't say, yeah, well, these terms and conditions, I'm not, I'm not jiving with that. I think you should rethink this. Not at all. He didn't call it unfair. So so from start to finish, that covenant in Genesis was all of grace. So that's why I have a trouble with the phrase covenant of works. All of man's works, we know the works of the law, like being um, kind and not gossiping and, you know, treating people with love and all these different things. All of those works of the law we know are legally binding, and they are a legally binding requirement of the covenant. We know that. God says, this is what you should do, and that's what you should not do, and that's a legal relationship. We know that, but where people go wrong is assuming that those requirements are the condition of the covenant, They are requirements of the covenant, but it's not the condition of the covenant because the condition of the covenant is God's grace. That's the working paradigm. So what makes a covenant is God's sovereign administration of the covenant, not the works of man. God sovereignly administers and puts the covenant in place by his grace. So God gives grace, and we know that this grace requires obedience, love, justice, righteousness, holiness, and so on. We know that. The covenant of grace, which is a way of describing all of God's covenantal activity in the world, is thus set forth in the garden and transpires throughout history with different administrations, different aspects, and different emphasis. So we'll explain that as we go. So that was Adam, the first covenant, the first section, if you will, of the covenant of grace. If you want to call it covenant works fine, but you better have the what I just said in line. Otherwise, it becomes problematic. So after God, um, after Adam, um, God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, and he even says as much, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with, with your offspring. God makes a covenant with Noah. And interestingly enough, he tells Noah the same thing that he said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. He reiterates the dominion covenant. So when you call the covenant of grace the covenant of grace, you might as well just call it the covenant of grace and dominion too because it's continually reiterated throughout throughout the Bible. So after Noah, we know that God calls Abram, the pagan Abram, who was not a Jewish man, but he became in in covenant with God. And yet again, there's a reiteration of the dominion covenant with the first family in the garden. Same thing. In that scene with uh, Abram, In Genesis 15, um, if you remember, the animals are cut in half, some birds were cut in half, and they were laid like this. And there's this um, interesting ceremony, this covenant ceremony. God and God alone, Abram's asleep, and God and God alone walks through in this covenant ceremony the divided pieces of animal that are sitting there, signifying that God himself is taking on the curses of the covenant. Only God walked through. Normally, if you make a covenant... You both pass through. And, and you think, well, that's weird. The animals are split in half. That's kind of a very grotesque thing. Well, it was symbolic in that if anyone failed to follow through with those terms of the covenant, may they be cut in half. May they die a death like that. But notice that Abram's asleep. God himself walks through the pieces, meaning I am going to do this covenant. I'm going to single-handedly carry this out. And I'm going to work with you, and I'm going to promise to give you the, you know, the son that I've told you you will have in your old age, but I'm, I am taking that on myself. So God passed through the pieces alone. So what God was saying in this particular aspect of the covenant, in this covenant act, was that if God didn't, if God didn't make his fulfillment come true, the promises come true, remember Abram's name was changed to what? Abraham. Abraham. He was um, saying, essentially, may, may God be split in half if he didn't fulfill it. So that's an oath unto death. And with Abraham, God begins to fashion a brand new worldwide family. Now, fast forward. Just think redemptive history. Fast forward. Following Abraham, we fast forward to Moses and the book of Exodus, and we have God's covenant at Sinai, Mount Sinai. Having rescued his chosen people from Egypt, remember that was a redemptive act of grace, They were slaves in Egypt, God rescues them out, passes them through the waters of baptism at the Red Sea. The kids too were in that part. (laughs) I'll just just throw that in there. But God gave them the covenant treaty specifying how it is they are to live as a holy people. God gave them the law. So you have the 10 commandments and you have case laws that follow that. God explains this is what holiness looks like, this is what righteousness looks like, this is what you're supposed to do. He gave them, for the Jews, it was the Torah, or the Torah. That's the law. So the Torah was a way of life. It was a way of how to be human, right? It was a, a, a way to carry out the Dominion Covenant. God gave, graciously gave them a law so that they knew what it looks like to function as someone who's supposed to be in covenant with God. So here the covenant takes on a national character. Now, in Exodus, the law was given first. But if you remember, the first generation, they were a bunch of curmudgeons complaining all the time. And God says, well, you're not going into the promised land, but your kids are. That's what Deuteronomy is about. Deuteronomy is, literally means the second giving of the law. God gives the law again. And he's emphasized here in Deuteronomy 5 with the next generation. He says, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who, who are all of us here alive today. Meaning that the kids had grown up, they're the ones who are coming in over the Jordan River. They're going to take the promised land. The parents, they were a bunch of whiny complainers. And God says, no, I'm just going to, you're going to die here. And that's, you know, you get Korah's rebellion and that whole incident where the earth just swallowed him up. And that, that was savage. Um, but but God's serious. He's holy and he hates sin. So the subject matter is the same thing. Same thing, different Same story, different act, different scene, so forth. God's covenant of grace comes again to an unworthy people, and it is a covenant of succession. God always has a plan for the future. He always passes his covenant on to the next generation. Now, one final high point in terms of God's covenantal dealings with his people in the Old Testament was the covenant, and this is a fascinating one, but it's the covenant that God made with David. David the king. In 2 Samuel 7, God told David that he would build David a house for God's name. Remember that David, after they had really conquered their enemies, and man, Israel was thriving on all cylinders as a nation. Their borders were expanded. Their influence in the world was expanding. David wanted to build God a house, a temple. And God says, no, that's not for you. I will build your house. Of course, we know that David's son Solomon went on to build the temple, and um, and glorified God in that. But uh, God told David, "No, you're not going to do that." See, this this the reason that God said this was that that God was promising a Davidic dynasty, a Davidic dynasty which culminated in Jesus's son. Or excuse me, in David's son, Jesus. Jesus himself is, according to Psalm 110.1, he's both David's son and he's David's Lord. So he, this promise of the covenant came to fruition in, in Jesus. Now, in Matthew 26, just a quick comment there. When Jesus, fast forward to, to that time in the first century, when Jesus held the Passover meal, he transformed it into the agape communion meal. It was, a, it was the same thrust of, of God's grace and his rescue, but he, he changed it. Um, that's why I'm not necessarily a big fan of celebrating the Passover meal. I think it's fine if you want to illustrate it and demonstrate oh this is kind of how they would have done it and and that's fine but we have a passover meal every week (laughs) so uh, there's nothing super spiritual about every spring doing a passover um, meal Uh, you know you don't need to blow the shofar and people really get into that and i think it's fine in terms of learning but it's not anything that god really commands us to do we're to take communion and that's the passover meal But the key phrase in what Jesus says, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Interesting phrase. This is my blood of the covenant. Blood has always been involved in God's covenant dealings because life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. And life in God's world is always dependent on his grace and our living in terms of his standards. So as punishment for sin in the Old Testament economy, the the blood of animals were shed rather than man's blood. You got to go and you make sacrifices, but also the sins were put on the scapegoat once a year, the Day of Atonement, and that scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness, signifying that God was throwing their sins away. Their sins are gone. But of course, we know in the New Testament, Jesus himself is where the sins go. It's his blood that's shed. Now, nowhere, nowhere, this is reiterated in Genesis nine and other places but nowhere was man allowed or permitted to shed blood the blood of other men except for capital punishment for certain crimes thou shalt not kill does not negate the death penalty by the way different words are used it's just it's a different context you're not allowed you're not permitted to commit murder the shedding of a blood. But we know from Genesis 9, by man's blood shall his blood be shed. So God gives the, the civil magistrate the, um, the responsibility to execute certain crimes in a certain way. So nowhere, man was never permitted to offer human sacrifice. A lot of pagan religions do that. And of course, we look around today, When you, human sacrifice is viewed as a denial of the covenant of grace. What is the greatest human sacrifice problem of our time? Abortion. Abortion is actually, for, for one, one example, it's the most egregious denials of grace. Absolutely. And it's actually a boasting in human idolatry and in human work. So the blood of the covenant is an important concept. So when Jesus made the meal, he did so knowing full well that in order to have a new human race, fully forgiven, and set right with God in His covenant, the blood of a perfect man was necessary. The blood of a perfect man was necessary. He had to be perfect because man had sinned. Jesus needed to be perfect. But He also had to be fully God because only God's grace could grant the forgiveness found in the atonement. So since all of life is stemming from God's handiwork and from His grace, since all of life is what it is because of His will alone, Life should not be taken, nor shall blood be shed, except for in terms of his law. Period. Hence the death of Christ. We have Christ's sacrificial death being the curse that we deserved. His death, we, we deserve the covenantal curse of death. He took it on himself. But it's also the blessing that um, we didn't deserve because we didn't deserve it. <laughs> That's why it's a blessing. And all of that was done in terms of God's covenant law. So what, what Keith had read, you have Jeremiah 31, you have Ezekiel 36. Jesus' new covenant promised by those prophets is a renewed covenant. And in that this covenant was the culmination of the other covenants that we just talked about. It's set forth in history. It's the defining moment of God's dealing with man when Jesus Christ's blood was poured out. So this covenant of grace Spans all of history, and the renewed covenant in Christ is the zenith, the climax, the crescendo of it all. So I'm hoping that helps you for those who may struggle with putting together how does all of this stuff relate? It's one big covenant. You might call me a mono covenantalist. I wouldn't be offended. But I see it's the big covenant of God's grace, different administrations. When Christ died, that's where it all was going. That was the defining moment, that's the zenith, that's the crescendo. So all of it leads to that point and it's all God's covenant of grace in history. Now, I think it's obvious right now, when we look at the world around us, the world that we find ourselves within, one thing that history teaches us, and I think the Bible teaches us obviously, God himself takes issue with his creatures. God takes issue with his creatures. What I mean is God made the so-called natural world. He made it good. He he takes no issue. He's not mad that he made the trees look the way he did. He's quite pleased with that, actually. It's beautiful, and, and that's what he did. But with man, though, we have a problem. And here's our problem. Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, The thoughts of God are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. That's a problem. God's ways are different than ours cuz we go on our own way and our thoughts are not his thoughts. Right? You call it a problem. <laughs> a massive problem. So everywhere we turn in history, looking at biblical history and history in general, we see the judgment of God if we would only stop and pay attention. We can see God working through history. Look at our current state of our nation. Is God judging us? Yes. Do we deserve far worse? Oh yeah. Big time. Now, the reason the covenant of grace exists in the world is because God put enmity and strife right between all of us. He put enmity right in the middle of it all. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that the seed of the serpent, that's men who work the devil's work, they're going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Remember that Genesis 3.15? However, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ himself, would crush the head of the serpent. Gospel promise. There's enmity there. He put this enmity there, which all men everywhere try to hurdle the enmity. You you know the signs that say love is love, science is real. That's enmity hurdling activity. We're trying to boil everything down to our own definitions, our own way of living. We're trying to get over the fact that we are at enmity with God and we're enmity with each other. So our sinning in the garden with Adam meant that we had departed from fellowship with God. We traded that contract with a contract for the serpent, the accuser. That was the trade-off. And what God has done in placing enmity in the human race is declare his intentions to break the covenant with the serpent and establish humanity, a new humanity, in covenant with himself. So when God said, okay, you guys sinned, here's the enmity. See to the woman, see to the serpent there is a line running down human history there's enmity there for a reason and either you're in covenant with god or you're in covenant with the devil and god put that enmity there and that was a gracious thing for him to do because now we know where the lines are drawn now we know what what reality really is but god put that enmity there so he could pull people out of that covenant and put them in covenant with himself see god promised in that moment total victory over the accuser whereby God would come in the person of Christ and plunder Satan's possessions and take them for himself. That's the victory. Take back his people. For all, man, for all of mankind, the covenant with God, indicated by the enmity, is entirely inescapable. You can't get rid of the enmity that God put there. By it, men are judged, and through it, men are brought to the reality of their measly existence. So the covenant... You might say the covenant is simply our condition as people living in God's world. That's our condition. We're covenantal creatures. We waltz into the world in covenant, whether we like it or not. When Hitler was born, he waltzed into the world in covenant with God, whether he liked it or not. And he, he of course, chose the amnesty route. We know that. So there's a straight line. Think of your your Bible. There's a straight line running from Genesis to Revelation. And this line is that covenant of grace. The covenant says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So covenant is thus always and everywhere. It's just everywhere. It's comprehensive and includes all things. The promise of this covenant is not conditional because it's backed by heaven. There's a guarantee with it. God never suggests that he would be our God, you know, if oh these people, if they would just get their act together, and then I'll be in covenant with them. If they would just do the right thing, then I'll covenant with them, then I'll love them, and they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. God never says that anywhere. He never said that in the Old Testament either, which, by the way, presents a massive problem for the dispensationalist worldview. Rather, God says that he will put the enmity there, he will be our God, and in Christ we have all things. That's the promise. So, the covenant of grace depends entirely on God, and it's on God because, guess what? God is immutable, he's unchanging. Are, you, are we immutable? No, we change all the time. God's immutable, and not only that, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now, one of the reasons Jesus' work is properly identified as the climax of the covenant is because Adam had forfeited his place as the head of the human race. Adam was the head of the human race, and he gave up on it. He said, I can't do it. I'm going to choose disobedience. But Christ, we know, supplanted it. Christ is the head of the new human race. Not only, think of it this way, Christ not only took upon himself the obedience that Adam should have supplied to the relationship, and that's true, he did, but he satisfies the demands of the law of God and brings together the church as a single unit, unified under his headship. That's what he does. So, you might say, then, the church is actually the future humanity. The church is the future humanity. That's where humanity is heading, into this covenant. Now, I want to shift gears just a little bit. Um, one of my favorite theologians, Cornelius Van Til, he, he, he died a year before I was born. And uh, whenever uh, the Reformed theologian, he was an apologist, uh, really pioneered presuppositional apologetics and and uh, was heavily influenced, um, he heavily influenced Rushdie too, and uh, it can be challenging to read sometimes, but whenever reformed theologian Van Til, he would walk into a classroom, and he would have his class here, and he would walk up, he'd grab a piece of chalk, and he would walk up to the chalkboard, and he would draw two circles, all right? I wish I had a chalkboard, I'd do it. But he would draw two circles, a big circle here on the top, and then a smaller circle on the bottom. So picture this chalkboard, big circle here, small circle here. And he would also do something else. He would draw two lines connecting the circles on the side. So a big one here, small one here, two lines connecting it. Can you visualize it? So he would draw those two lines, and he would say, that's the covenant. That's the covenant of grace. And what he means is, the top circle is God and his transcendence. God in his being, who he is apart from creation, just the being of God, the ontology of God, who he is in his essence and nature. The smaller circle, of course, you know, God in his otherness, the smaller circle is creation, us. We're here, we're finite, we have problems. The thing that binds God, who is infinitely transcendent, with his creation is the covenant it's literally the thing that brings us together that covenant so the the thing that binds the infinite transcendent god to his finite creation is the covenant so the covenant is foundational to everything for the covenant is the treaty the covenant is the legal relationship that defines the world entirely that's the thing that binds it all together so the world itself is defined by covenant so our, this is why we say sometimes around these parts, our relationship with God is covenantal. Our relationship with each other, guess what that is? Covenantal. Even the person you're not married to, even though you have a covenant relationship there, the person you're not married to, your brother or sister in Christ who's sitting here among you, guess what? You still have a covenantal relationship with them. So our relationship to the world is covenantal as well everything is tied to the Covenant. It's the thread that is woven into our entire existence. And the reason Van Til would walk into his classroom and he would start here is because the Covenant is the only possible way to have intelligibility in the world. Now kids, I'm I'm not to demean you, but I'm gonna guess that you walked out, maybe you saw some of the animals here, and none of you thought, well maybe I'm a donkey. Maybe I'm a chicken. (laughs) okay so none of you thought that right i mean if you did will help but you you shouldn't have but you know that you function differently than a duck you function differently than a chicken you know that but you can make sense of all that because god is a covenantal god it's the thing that makes sense of all other things god uses covenant to establish order in the world now I want to briefly hit on this, and we, like I said, we use it for our structure of our liturgy here. We use it um, for in, a, in a lot of ways, but there are five facets to this covenant. The first one is transcendence. Transcendence answers the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? And if you answer the United States government, we've done a bad job. <laughs> who's in charge of the world? God's in charge of the world, Okay second is hierarchy which answers the question what is man in relationship to this god and what is the subordinate order established therein in other words if god is transcendent i'm not and if i'm not what does god require of me as his creation third ethics that answers the question what are the rules and the boundaries what's the law what's the governing relationship between this transcendent god and me as a human made in his image Fourth, oaths or sanctions. What, that answers the question, what happens if I obey or I disobey? What happens if you disobey God, children? Sometimes he will sanction us. Um, the economic chaos that's happening right now. Read Deuteronomy 28. We have God sanctioning us, and we deserve far worse than what we're getting right now. Fifth point of the covenant is succession, not secession. Succession, meaning successive things, right? That answers the question, what does the future hold? Now that we have these things in place, what is the future? What, what is it gonna look like for our children and their children and our grandchildren? So each of the covenants we see in scripture bears out this theme. And this is because those covenants are all different aspects of the one covenant of grace. So the emphasis is thus on God who is sovereign, man who is subordinate to God, the law of God which stipulates the justice and the righteousness, the sanctions or the blessings or the cursings, depending on whether or not we obey or disobey, and the promise of everlasting life or everlasting punishment. In other words, look, if you wanna make sense of the world, if you want to know what it means to be a man, a woman, a child in this world, if you want to know what it means to work, what does it mean to have a family, what does it mean to, be, uh, to establish justice, to be in, in the covenant church, if you want to know how to make sense of all of that, what it means for any of those things, what does it mean to be a man, what does it be, mean to be a woman, if you want to know what those things are, you have to understand covenant. You have to and that said we have sphere sovereignty in the covenant god's established order in his creation he's established um, these institutions the family the church the state i'm not going to say a whole lot about those i don't have much time for that but those institutions the family the church and the state they're all accountable to god all three have their own sets of order offices and functions and while they do overlap to some degree, God does have a specific vision for each of those institutions. Each is called to be in covenant with God, establishing the law of God in their respective jurisdictions. And again, I'll have to go into time to go into each one, but the point is, God's order in the world is covenantal, intentional, and very, very much purposeful. And everything is traced back to the covenant. And without the covenant law, societies crumble and the inexorable problem of tyranny is brought forth and here you are 2021 now just a few final last thoughts there is a question that we have to ask at this point and frankly um it's a question that the church of jesus christ really needs to hammer out and i fear honestly uh that right now we're not even really ready to have this discussion i mean just generally the church in america and um, I think it's because we're too busy with idols and piousism. But there is a question we have to ask, and we should have been asking it for a long time. But we're just too consumed with other things. So, nonetheless, we're at Crossing Crown. We talk a lot of, about a lot of things. It matters to us. So I'm going to ask it here. But this is a question that, if I were to ask many pastors around this area, I think I would I might get in trouble. Here's the question: How does the kingdom advance? simple question I think most pastors would tell me well it doesn't really or Jesus sort of does it and you know what the ship's going down anyway (laughs) you know there's we'll just pray how does the kingdom advance maybe that's not the question that you thought I would ask but it is the question I think the church has to start asking here's my answer how does the kingdom advance the answer is through covenant obedience and sacrificial love Period. Covenant obedience, sacrificial love. Period. That's the formula. How does the kingdom advance? Well, how did our Father in heaven advance his kingdom? How did the Father advance his kingdom? He sent his Son. It was Christ who exemplified for us what it means to be a genuine human being, who showed us what it means to be covenantally obedient to God, and who did so in a world of tyranny and turmoil pouring himself out in sacrificial love. That's how the kingdom advances. Not by Easter egg drops and cutesy kid programs. That's not how the kingdom advances. It just doesn't. That's how you distract people from the kingdom, by the way. But covenant obedience. Children, you are obligated to the covenant that you have been brought into. God has bound himself to you. And he proved it to you by his son. You, you are now in covenant with him. You have a relationship with him. There is a law that you need to be obedient to. There is a, if young girls here, you're being raised to be women, godly women. That's super important for you to figure out. Men, little boys, younger, younger boys, y'all are the same, you're in that camp too. You need to know what it means to be a man. You're covenantally, covenantally obligated to sort those things out. And trust me when I say this, I think I can speak for all the parents here. We're trying, and it, it's difficult. It's very hard. There's a lot in life to balance out. But we are bound by covenant to God, and we need to sort those things out. Some of you need to make businesses, and some of you can start now. I mean, there's all these things that God has given us, and we need to be obedient to God. Him. That's how the kingdom advances. And it advances when we remember that the covenant comes to us in the form of a commandment. Repent and believe. Children, repeat after me. Repent and believe. You never walk away from those words. Never. Never walk away from those words. Every moment of every day, that's the demand of the covenant. Repent and believe and this means that we have a responsibility before the living God we have an individual responsibility to reflect the image of God we have as a church we have a corporate responsibility to reflect what God has done among us in this institution your family all of you families you have covenantal responsibilities that you need to attend to and frankly the state does this too but that thing's such a mess that's going to require some time But right now, responsibility seems to be hard to come by. In our culture, everything is someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault. We blame others. We make assumptions. We complain. Boy, do we murmur about things. And then we wonder why the world is rotting away. Why is the church losing ground in this nation? Because we lack covenantal obedience and sacrificial love, the two things that God demands and requires and it's the very thing God has called us to do. And until we recover this, the church is going to be the tail and not the head, the very thing God warned in Deuteronomy 28. So the covenant is everything. It's it's God's ordering of the universe from the farthest galaxy to the person next to you. The covenant is everything. Covenant faithfulness and obedience coupled with a genuine self-sacrificial love for others in the family, in the church, and in the magistracy That's how holiness spreads. That's how institutions are changed. That's how the world stops eating the pig's food and comes back to the Father who has a banquet prepared with infinite options at our disposal. So everything is covenantal. Nothing is neutral. The world is ours because the world belongs to God, so we need to act like it. Let's pray. Father, we approach your throne boldly today. Boldly because of what your Son has done on our behalf. We glorify you, Jesus, in that. And we thank you that you endured the cross. We're humbled by that. And and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are among us and in us and guiding us. So Heavenly Father, may it be, be your will that we would understand this covenant, that we would be shaped by it, that we would be able to make sense of the world Um, while much of the world is groping around in darkness. So today we, we celebrate communion, we eat together, we fellowship, and ultimately we raise our glass to the King. For it is you, Christ Jesus, that we serve. In Jesus' name, amen.